Continuing in the Gospel in Genesis, and we're still in the Gospel of Abraham. It was December 2012. Nancy and I watched him go up the escalator to the airport gates. We watched until we couldn't see him anymore. Jason, our son, was moving to New York. He was moving to New York with, for a girl. And it turned out to be a really good move. As we were walking away, we were, of course, sad about it. We'd never been more than 100 miles away from our son for any length of time. And I was thinking, uh, I was thinking, actually, I knew right then that we too would be moving to New York. I didn't know how and I didn't know when, but I knew we would. And while I knew the surface reason, not so much for Jason, but for grandkids... I sense there were, there were other reasons. Now, I'm not equating myself with Abram, but I did sense that God was calling us to go to a different country that he would show us. What I didn't know were the reasons, the other reasons. Nor did I know what, God, what it is that God wanted us to do. Nancy and I had to learn how to trust God and trust him that he was working the big, big picture well-known Bible teacher and part-time theologian said this, the story of Abraham is not primarily about his sacrificial obedience, but about God's covenantal commitment to fulfill the promises God had made. That part-time theologian and well-known Bible teacher is Caleb. I listened to his sermons. (laughs) Caleb's assertion reflects one of the two big pictures I want to take a look at this morning. The first big picture is the determination of God to create a people for himself that would be his imagers, that he could be with, and that would reign with him. That does require a plan of redemption because of our sin. But God's plan began with Adam. Adam failed, should have been destroyed, but God didn't destroy him. He preserved him. So his plan could continue. Adam's descendants became wicked, rebellious, And while God destroyed nearly all of humanity because of that wickedness with the flood, he preserved Noah and his family so that God's plan could continue. But Noah's descendants, as you know, also became wicked. And I think we could say nearly universally rebelled against God. Those wicked rebels tried to Uh, what the Bible says, make a name for themselves at a place called Babel. That is, they wanted to be their own rulers. They wanted to be self-sufficient. They wanted to live without God and in active rebellion against him. The people of Babel deserved destruction, but rather than destroying them, God scattered them, confusing their languages, and from that began a people of his own, a people that would continue his plan of redemption that would find its fulfillment in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That people started with a fellow named Abram. And Abram was God's part of God's big picture of redemption. Which leads us to another big picture. Abram's big picture. And to understand that we need to start back in chapter 12. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. 
and I will make you of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's plan was to use Abram. Abram the idolater. Abram the pagan, who along with virtually every el- everybody else in the world at the time was opposed to God. And then God called Abram, and God called Abram to leave his country. That is everything he was accustomed to, his home, his friends, his life, his idols, his gods. He called Abram to leave his father's house. That is, Abram had to separate himself from his great-grandparents, who were probably alive when he left, his grandparents, his mom and dad, and the life of the family that he grew up with. He also had to leave his kindred. That is, he had to separate, separate himself from his relatives, his uncles, his aunts. I think some of us would like to be separated from our relatives. His cousins, his in-laws, his nieces, and his nephew. Abram not only had to leave, he had to go. He had to go to the land that God would show him, meaning that Abram had to learn to trust God, the only God. Abram would learn a new name for this God he was now following, El Elyon, God Most High. It was in the leaving and the going that Abram would make, that God, I'm sorry, would make Abram a great nation, so that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him, which of course points to Christ. God was going to change Abram, so he would be the first, in the, or the next, I should say, in the line of the Redeemer. Abram would learn to trust the God who called him, that is, the other big picture. So we have two big pictures. God's plan of redemption and Abram learning to trust. And they are both, by design, inseparable. As we unpack these two big pictures in Genesis chapters 13 and 14, we will see Abram renewing his trust in God. We'll see Abram separating. We'll see Abram's victory in the rescue of Lot. And we'll see Abram meeting two kings. Let's pray. Father God, I don't know why you do it, but for some reason you have chosen to use your people to advance your plan of redemption. Seems like it would have been much easier for you to just save people, but you've chosen to use us like you chose, like you chose to use Abram. May we learn to trust, Father, trust you in using us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Father, or excuse me. Uh, Abram renewed trust. Caleb covered it last week. There was a famine in Canaan. Abram fled to Egypt, and there, out of his fear for his life, he made his wife Sarai lie so that Pharaoh would take her in as his wife, probably one of many, to preserve Abram's skin. Abram allowed Sarai, through whom God would bring the child of promise, to be subject to rape, abuse, possibly death. I don't know what Abram was thinking, but he wasn't trusting God. Well, God put an end to that. He put an end to that by afflicting Pharaoh with great plagues. Sounds a little familiar about something that would happen a few centuries later. And Abram went back to Canaan with a lot more wealth than he came to Egypt with. Genesis 13, 1 through 4. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where he 
where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had first made an, or made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And it's worth noting here that when Abram traveled back from Egypt into Canaan, he started in the Negev, which is the southern part of Canaan, and went up all the way up to north to Bethel, traveling across much of the land that God would show him would be his, although at the moment he didn't know it. Abram landed where he landed when he first entered Canaan, between Bethel and Ai. The author tells us that this is where Abram first made an altar. Well, to be absolutely accurate, Bethel is where Abram made a second altar. The first altar was at Shechem, at a place called the Oak of Morah, where God appeared to Abram and promised him the land of promise would be given to his descendants. You see that in Genesis 12, 6, and 7. That oak was likely a sacred place where there were many altars, altars to Canaanite gods, where Canaanites would worship other gods like Abram used to do. This place and the altar Abram built there can be seen as God's part of God's big picture as a kind of a beachhead in this land inhabited by peoples who were wicked and hostile to God, like Abram used to be. God had spiritually staked out his claim for the land and for his people from whom the Messiah would come. But it was at this, the place of the second altar that Abram built between Bethel and Ai that Abram first called on the name of the Lord. Or as some versions have it, where Abram first worshipped the Lord. Hebrew word translated called upon means to proclaim. It seems to be a formal kind of worship at a place where one pitched his tent, like Isaac did in Beersheba in Genesis 26, where Isaac, like Abram, called upon the name of the Lord. This calling of, uh, on the Lord, this worship, I think, was a kind of repentance for Abram. Renewing his trust in God after his lack of trust in Egypt. This was a brushstroke in Abram's big picture of learning to trust, while at the same time, God was using Abram to further his own big picture of redemption. Abram separated. Abram had renewed his trust in God, and I imagine Sarai was still not speaking to him. But there was a problem. <laughs> Genesis 13, 5-7. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them by dwelling, both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. The problem here was that Abram and Lot couldn't stay together, given their competing needs. The problem was exacerbated by the fact that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were in the land. Perizzites, not parasites, sorry. Making the potential for conflict even greater. But God had arranged events and people to move Abram's trust in God, to do what God had called him originally to do, to leave his kindred, to separate from Lot. God was orchestrating events to deal with this real problem that Abram had. Now, I'm not willing to charge Abram here with disobedience or not even necessarily willful disobedience, but Abram had not done what God called him to do. Abram may have been motivated by his concern for Lot, who was part of his family, and I suspect Abram realized that uh, Lot had a little bit of trouble, so he needed support because Lot had a tendency not to be very steadfast. 
Abram may have believed that leaving his country, leaving his father's house was enough, but it wasn't because God was doing a work in Abram's life. And Abram, lot, Abram keeping a lot close to him was a detriment to Abraham's, Abram's growth in trusting God. Abram's lack of trust in God by staying with Lot was a problem for God's plan. Now, don't misunderstand. Abram's failure at any point, at many points, where he did fail, never put God's plan in jeopardy. God was going to accomplish his plan, but God had chosen Abram to be an integral part of the plan. The plan of redemption included Abram. As God desires for all his people, Abram needed to learn to fully trust God. Abram needed to separate from Lot. And so God made it happen. So Abram came up with a solution to the problem. Genesis 3, 8 through 18. Abram said to Lot, Let there be no quarreling between me and you, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for you are close relatives. It's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself now from me. If you go to the left, then I'll go to the right. But if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw the whole region of the Jordan. He noticed that all of it was well watered before the Lord obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, all the way to Zoar. Lot chose for himself the whole region of the Jordan and traveled toward the east. So the relatives separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, but Lot settled among the cities of the Jordan plain and pitched his tents next to Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were extremely wicked, wicked rebels against the Lord. After Lot departed, the Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you stand to the north, south, east, and west. I give all the land that you see to you and your descendants forever, and I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth. So if anyone is able to count the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be counted. Get up, walk out through the walk out, walk throughout the land, and for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tents, went to the light by the oaks of Mamre and Hebron, and he built an altar to the Lord there. The solution was to separate. Lot made a choice based solely on what the land looked like. The region of the Jordan or the Jordan Plain looked good. It looked real good. It did not seem a problem for Lot that the area he chose was right next to Sodom, where the author makes clear we're full of wicked rebels. Another, ver- uh, another version says, or the ESV says, that they are wicked and great sinners. Secondly, Abram advanced his trust in God. The act of separation, even as it was arranged by God, was a step of further trust by Abram. This is evidenced by what God told Abram after the separation. God told Abram to take a look around. It may be that Abram went up to Mount Hebron, which rose about 3,300 feet in the air, and from there Abram would have had a view of nearly all of Canaan, both north, south, east, and west, to what would become the promised land that God said would be given to him and his descendants who were no more numerous than could be counted. God expands here on the original promise of chapter 12. God gives Abram an idea of the scope of the land that he would be given, he and his descendants. The promise is eternal in nature. And the offspring of Abram referred to here, and of course in chapter 12, are those who are the offspring of faith. Genesis 3, or excuse me, Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God then tells, really commands Abram, to take a tour of the land. 
as if it's a done deal. It's already as if it's already in his possession. It's as good as done. God gives Abram a glimpse of the big picture. So Abram went on tour. He landed in Hebron, where Abram built another altar to the Lord, demonstrating his trust in God. And then Abraham's victory and rescue of Lot. Genesis 14, 1 through 3. <clears throat> in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Shedor, Lamur, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. This passage introduces what happens next in Abram's story. To give context, in those days, <clears throat> there were not nations like we think of nations. There were cities or maybe city-states. And sometimes these cities would band together to consolidate power, and often such alliances would require other cities to pay them tribute, to pay them a yearly sum, ostensibly for the more powerful to protect the ones paying the tribute. And we can call it what it is, it's extortion. Sometimes <clears throat> the cities paying tribute would rebel. They'd stop paying. Say, I'm not going to do this anymore. City-states receiving the tributes would, in response, attack the rebels, forcing them to resume paying or plundering their city or both, usually both. The plunder would include both possessions and people. And this is the situation we encounter in chapter 14. The author wants us to see what these kings are doing as a setup for the defeat of Sodom and the taking of Lot. A group of kings from Mesopotamia, including the area of Babylon and including the area of Ur, where Abram came from, led by a fellow named Shador Lemur, made their way to attack five kings who had rebelled against them. Those kings included Bera, king of Sodom. And on the way to Sodom, Shador Lemur, I'm having a good deal of trouble pronouncing that name, and his allies defeated four other cities, increasing their power. And then they came to the Jordan Plain and to the five cities who had stopped paying tribute. Shadar Lemur defeated those cities as well, driving the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah to flee, and they ended up hiding in some tar pits. The victorious kings took all their possessions, all their provisions, and it seems all the people, all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, including Lot, who had previously decided to live in the city of Sodom by then. One of the people taken captive escaped and went to Abram and told Abram what happened. And Abram by this time had made some friends, had allied himself with a family of Amorites. And one of the cities defeated by Shador, Shador Lemur included a group of Amorites. So Abram's friends now had a stake in this matter. Along with an unknown but small number from the allied Amorites, Abram took along with him 318 men of his own to go pursue Shadow Lamar and his allies and to defeat them and to rescue Lot. Abraham pursued them. These other kings would have, who, who would have had a much large, larger force all the way to northern Canaan. Abram defeated Shador Lemur rescued not only Lot, but the people and the possessions and provisions that had been taken. 
Abram chased the kings further north all the way into Damascus, a distance of about 200 miles from Hebron. Abram's victory was miraculous. So Abram's motivation, of course, was to rescue Lot. However, it seems likely that this has more import than just a rescue. Abram's total victory could be seen as pointing to the eventual conquest of the land by the Israelites under Joshua and under David. And as God gave them victory, God gave Abram victory. Advancing again God's big picture. And Abram's big picture of trust. This also shows that God's claim to land, while not realized yet, would be accomplished. It would be accomplished through those who trusted. Like Abram was called to trust. And more than that, this demonstrates another step of trust by Abram in the promise of God. Abram's trust in God Most High. Then Abram meets two kings. One we're familiar with. Genesis 14, 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of Shador Lamar, and all the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. After the victory, Abram would have traveled back to Hebron, where he had been staying. Along, and along the way, Abram came to this valley, this valley of Shaveh, known to Moses as the King's Valley and known to, in Jesus' time, as the Kidron Valley. Kidron Valley is a small valley. It's more of a ravine, really, that sits between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley on his way to Gethsemane. Abram stopped there, probably, most likely, because Bera, the king of Sodom, had wanted to meet him there. Then a surprise. Surprise in the narrative, unexpected, and I think a surprise to Abram to see this fellow we have met before, this Melchizedek. He's identified with, as uh, the king of Salem, which is what the city was called before it was called Jerusalem. And not only a king, but Melchizedek was a priest, a priest of El Elyon, God Most High. Hebrews 7 tells us that Melchizedek was a king of righteousness, and that his name means king of righteousness, and that also as king of Salem, his name means king of peace. Peace is what Salem means. So we have this mysterious priest king who comes on the scene without context or explanation. He just shows up. Well, Abram grew up in a pagan society where the knowledge of God was all but unknown. At God's call, Abram traveled to the land of Canaan, full of people who were also pagans, opposed to God, as were the people of Sodom. Abram, in his faith, was virtually alone in knowing God, and he was surrounded by all idolaters. Abram might have felt like Elijah, who believed that he was alone. After the defeat of Baal, the followers of Baal, but before God told Elijah that there were 7,000 who had not bent the knee to Baal. So here comes this priest king, who Hebrews tells us is a type of Christ. He lives in Canaan, he's a Canaanite, but who demonstrated that God was already present in the land. This land that was filled with multitudes of pagan gods and goddesses before Abram ever showed up. There were people there who were followers of God in this city 
called Salem. Melchizedek says, God most high blesses you, Abram. That Abram received such a blessing from God, I think, must have been stunning to Abram. Certainly, Abram did some good things, but he also demonstrated faithlessness with the incident in Egypt and with hanging around with Lot for so long. It was not for Abram's acts that God blessed him. Abram was blessed for his trust in God, as weak as it may have been. Melchizedek calls God possessor of heaven and earth. The Hebrew word translated possessor means to buy or to acquire or to get. Sometimes it's translated creator, but the idea of possessor here seems on point. God is the possessor of everything and of the land of Canaan, the land of promise in particular. As Abram built an altar in the midst of pagan altars to show that God was making his claim on the land, God is seen here is already possessing it. Abram was under God's care and direction. That Abram was under God's care and direction becomes clear. Because after pronouncing God's blessing of Abram, Melchizedek then blesses God Most High. Because God Most High gave Abram victory. God was the reason Abram was victorious. Demonstrating again God's advancing his big picture while at the same time advancing Abram's big, trust, big picture of trust in God Most High. And then there's another king Abram meets. As he had met Melchizedek, he would now meet King Bera of Sodom. An entirely different encounter. Genesis 14, 21 to 24. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons... But take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. The king of Sodom must have watched Abram and Melchizedek. And I, given the victory of Abram and Watching what happened between Abram and Melchizedek, I think the king of Sodom might have been a bit wary of what Abram would say to him or would do to him. But Bera asked Abram to allow him to keep the people of Sodom, but Abram could keep the possessions. How kind of him. Bera's request was bold, it was ungracious, and it was demanding. Bera had no right to ask Abram for anything. Abram's victory entitled Abram to keep everything, both possessions and people. Get out of here. (laughs) Abram could have just turned his back on Bera, leaving Bera with nothing. But in what must have been a surprise to Bera, Abram took an oath by God Most High. He just learned his name. And not to to not keep any of the possessions or any of the people for himself. Abram only allowed to take what his men had already eaten and to allow Abram's allies, the Amorites, to take their share. Seems Abram has come full circle. Seems Abram learned from his experience from Egypt, or in Egypt, at least for a while. And this reflected his trust in God to provide for him. Abram had learned to trust God a little more. Abram was learning to live in the big picture of growing trust in God, whom he now knows as God Most High. The step of trusting God would lead Abram to another encounter with God in chapter 15. 
and would be an expression of even deeper trust in God Most High. And Abram would trust, and Abram would fail. I'd like to consider a couple of things here. First, I'd like you to consider this. If you are a believer in Christ, you are blessed by God. When God called Abram, God promised Abram would be blessed. Melchizedek told Abram that he would be blessed by God Most High. Abraham trusted God blessed him. And God blesses all who trust him. A few examples. Psalm 32, 1-2. through two. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. 1 Peter 4.14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and, the, and of God rests upon you. Galatians 3.9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. There's a lot more blessings that we don't have time to look at. You are blessed. Consider this, as God developed the big picture of Abraham's trust, God is doing the same in you. Philippians 1.6, I I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever felt um, like you weren't going anywhere, like you weren't getting anywhere in your faith, in your growth in God. I know I have. But the promise here is that God is going to complete that work in you. It's a lifelong process, but God's going to complete it. So as much as you may think or feel sometimes that there isn't much going on in your life, God's working, and he has worked, and he will work. And then consider this. Well, we said before that God's big picture of redemption was inseparable from Abram's big picture of growing trust in God. God did not need Abram, and if Abram had failed and ultimately fallen, God still would have accomplished his plan. But God chose Abram to further his plan of redemption, meaning that God would have his work done in Abram. God has accomplished his plan of redemption. Christ has come. He lived a perfect life. He sacrificed himself on the cross to take the judgment for our sin. Christ rose from the dead, ascended to the Father, and he's now sitting at God's right hand, interceding for us. So the plan of redemption has been completed. What's left? What's left for us? What's left is the application of God's plan of redemption. God is using you, believer. Yes, you. In the same way he used Abram. Not because he has to, but because he chooses to. Out of his grace. In order to advance his plan for the application of redemption. Both to those who need to hear the gospel, those around us who need to know Christ, and to those who have heard the gospel and responded to it. Those you serve, those you help, those you bring a meal to, those you pray with, those you study the Bible with. 
And at the same time, God is growing you in your trust of him. Just like God did with Abram. It wasn't until almost six years later, after Jason went up that escalator, that Nancy and I had any idea of what God wanted. What he wanted from us, through us in New York. We did not know how God would use us. Yet he knew. And we are were, we were really just beginning to see what God is doing and how he's using us. And we trust him to use us. When someone asks why we moved to New York from sunny Southern California, I often say that we moved here for the weather. <laughs> it's funny, sometimes people believe it when I say it. <laughs> the better answer <clears throat> is that God moved us to use us in his big picture. All the while, leading us to trust him. Even when we fail. Abram was blessed by El Elyon, God Most High. You, believer, are blessed by God Most High. So listen to what God Most High has prepared for you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand. For us, you and me, to walk in. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for trusting, causing us to trust, causing us to trust you, causing us to hear you and to learn from you. And again, as I said earlier, Father, I don't get it. I don't know why you would use us. I don't know why you would go to the trouble of using failed people, fallen people, people who don't trust you very often. But you're working that trust in us, Lord, as we live for you. And while you're working that trust in us, you are working your plan of redemption and the application of redemption through us. So, Father, may we trust you. And may we be free and open for us to be used by you as you accomplish your plan your big picture, and as you accomplish your big picture in us. In Jesus' name, amen.